Hello, and welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I'm your host today, Holly Spear. And I'm Kylie Colwell. And today is my episode. And for all you Arkansans out there, or former temporary Arkansans like Kylie and Kate, which Kate's not here, but like Kylie, um, I have a little Arkansas case. So we will just hop right into the case today. So the person that we're talking about today, her name is Rebecca Gould, and she was born and raised in Mountain View, Arkansas. Rebecca's 22 years old. So Mountain Home is situated at the top edge of Arkansas, and it has a population of about 12,000 people. So it's pretty small, typical Arkansas town. The town is obviously known for the Ozark Mountains, and there's a Buffalo River, a White River, and a North Fork River about 15 minutes away from Mountain Home. So you can get to a lot of different outdoor activities from Mountain Home. So Rebecca Gould had three sisters. Her older sister, Tiffany, went to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, about three hours away from Mountain Home. And Rebecca dreamed of kind of following in the footsteps of her older sister and going to U of A. Rebecca and her younger sister, Danielle, decided that they would take a couple classes at the community college in Northwest Arkansas. And this community college is actually relatively close to the U of A campus, probably about 20 minutes-ish, but it's a really actually nice campus. And so Rebecca and her sister, Danielle, are going to get a few classes taken care of for less money than going to the U of A, but they're up there for college along with their older sister. Again, Rebecca's 22 at this time, and in September 2004, Rebecca and Danielle are enjoying school. They're enjoying living on their own for the first time, and they're planning on going back home to visit their mother and some of their friends. So Danielle and Rebecca pack up in Rebecca's car and begin the drive to Mountain Home. They're going to stay the weekend, and they plan to drive back to Northwest Arkansas on Monday morning. And Rebecca actually has her little dog, Lacey, with her. And Rebecca is mainly coming home to see her mom, but she's planning on actually staying the night at her friend Casey's house in a town over. Now, this is pretty normal, I think, for Rebecca. I don't know this, but I feel like when you move out of college, your room just immediately becomes whatever your parents need your room to be. So it's possible her room is like a gym or mine turned into a craft room. Craft room, office, gym. Yeah. So I think this is pretty normal. I don't think she has any beef with her family. I think her parents are divorced, but I mean, there's really no particular reason she's just staying with her friend. Now, Casey is actually a boy and he is an old boyfriend, but they have remained friends. And him and Rebecca had met at their job that they worked at. They both worked at Sonic and they had begun dating kind of odd and get off again. Right now, they were just friends, but I think Casey wanted to be more. He wanted to be back on with Rebecca. Rebecca didn't want that. She was enjoying her independence and kind of dating other people. And Casey was probably pretty upset about this. I think that one of the podcasts I listened to talking about this story said that Rebecca had gotten a text from Casey like right before she was coming over to his house. And it had said, you know, I want to be exclusive with you or something to that effect. And she made a statement to someone like, oh, it's just Casey again. Like, he won't quit wanting to date me. And she was going to kind of planned on maybe setting him straight a little bit kindly that, like, she just saw them as still friends. So she goes for the weekend and Monday rolls around and it's time to head back to school. Her younger sister, Danielle, is supposed to ride back with her. But Danielle cannot get a hold of Rebecca. And Rebecca never shows up to pick up Danielle. Rebecca's family doesn't panic right off the bat. They say that in the beginning, it was not abnormal for Rebecca not to answer the phone all the time. There were times where she would kind of go off the grid and do this. They assumed that she was just not ready to go back to school and not ready to go back to class. And it's kind of blowing off her younger sister for the day 
and just kind of staying, you know. So then Tuesday morning rolls around and the family starts getting more concerned. Rebecca may have prolonged going back to class for a little bit, but literally no one has heard from her. So they start getting actually scared. September 21st, the county sheriff, his name is Charlie Milton. He was on the clock when he got a call from Rebecca's mom that Tuesday morning. The first place that Officer Milton wanted to check for Rebecca is the last place she was known to be at, obviously, which was Casey, and his last name is McCullough. So the officers find out that Casey is actually at work at the local Sonic, and they head over to ask him a few questions. Casey tells the officers that he had seen Rebecca that previous Monday, but that that was the last time that he saw her. He said that she actually dropped him off Monday morning at Sonic for his shift, and Actually, she was supposed to pick him up from the shift as well, but she didn't show. He said that he ended up going and hanging out with friends after his shift and had never gone back home Monday night. The cops come see him at Sonic, and he basically is like, I haven't been home since Monday morning. It's Tuesday. Casey's claiming that he hasn't been home yet, so he doesn't know if Rebecca is still at his house or not, or she's left or whatever. That's so, so I, yeah, I found that a little odd. Um, I think that... What had happened was she didn't show to pick him up. Casey had some of his friends drive by and see him kind of stranded in the parking lot. They picked him up and they were like, hey, well, you can come with us. We're about to go eat and go to a movie. And so he does that with them. He goes back to their house. And I saw one report saying that they went back to friend's house, smoked weed, and then he like fell asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that makes it a little bit more normal. But I mean, he didn't he's saying he didn't come home to change clothes. And I think later he kind of contradicts that and he does tell some sources that he did go home and that she was not there, that Rebecca wasn't there. But he initially tells police that he has not been back home. That's unfortunately a little bit of red flags. Police actually ask Casey if they can take a look at his house. And Casey is actually completely fine with that. Officer Milton and Casey pull up at his house, and the first thing that Officer Milton notices, obviously, is Rebecca's car is still in the driveway. Casey and the officer enter the home, and the officer does not really like what he finds. The officer finds that Rebecca's beloved dog was still there, along with her purse and most all of her belongings. Police then ask him to take him to the bedroom, and Casey does. The officer notices that all the sheets have been stripped off the mattress. So essentially the mattress is just like laying there with nothing on top of it. Police ask if they can look under the mattress. And when they do so, they find what Officer Milton describes as a large blood stain on the bottom of it. So the mattress has been flipped over. Now in the interview that Officer Milton gave with Dateline NBC, he does not describe how big this blood stain is. He doesn't give a measurement to the size or if it's like, the size of your hand or the size of a body so we really don't know if it's possible if Rebecca could still be alive but they're treating her as still alive so I assume that it wasn't something immediately obvious that she was obviously dead you know because they're still treating it as a missing person yeah I guess if it's soaked all the way through and flipping it over wouldn't yeah. mean anything that could be right. a bigger yeah. sign And I'll also point out that they find blood under the wall of the bed and bloody clothing stuffed under the bed, but they don't see any blood that's immediately visible if you weren't searching for it. Like, there was no blood splatter. The the blood that was on the wall was under the bed. It had, like, splattered under the bed, behind the headboard, something where you would have to search for it to see it. It wasn't immediately obvious. So police then look in the laundry room and they open the washing machine and find all the linens on the bed with blood on them. So just to point out, Casey's like letting police officers look through all of this stuff. I mean, technically, they probably could come in since her car was there. I don't know if that would give them enough cause to come in and search for a missing person. But they're kind of like pulling things out, opening things. I mean, she wouldn't be in the washing machine, you know, so it's like they're searching pretty hard um so casey's being pretty upfront and forthcoming with police letting them completely do whatever to search for her especially considering there's blood all over his house so anyways 
police let Rebecca's family know that they had searched in Casey's home and they said that there was no sign of Rebecca, but they did find her stuff and some blood. Rebecca's family responds in a way that I felt maybe was odd, but they didn't take it as seriously in the beginning. Rebecca's sister said that they drove out to Casey's fully prepared to give Rebecca a lecture about, you know, not just not keeping up with the things she should do and not showing back up to school. And they were basically like, didn't really think that anything was wrong. They assumed that she was quote out partying somewhere. And they thought that this would be eventually a situation that they could look back and laugh at. Rebecca's father said that Rebecca would always be the last one to come when you called her, that she was a little bit rebellious from the beginning. They said she had a mind of her own. She was known to sneak out, did whatever she wanted, a free spirit and they said that, unfortunately, she was fearless and not really scared of anything. Kind of different than a lot of the families that we see in these cases. They didn't really respond the same way in the beginning. I was going to say, it's like the complete opposite. You hear, like, families begging police to search for their missing daughter. Like, oh, no, she didn't run away. Like, she's not out partying. And police are like, oh, she'll come back. She's yeah. not partying. I don't know. Maybe they were just kind of didn't want to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably the case. I think they just kind of don't want to accept that anything could possibly be wrong. And and also, to be fair, when the officer said that they found blood, they didn't say it was Rebecca's blood. They didn't say how much blood it was. You know, they it could just be a drop of for all they know. So Rebecca's father kind of claimed in a Dateline episode about this case that he attributed Rebecca's personality to how she was raised. He explained that him and Rebecca's mom had split up when the girls were young, and it was a very contentious divorce. There was a particularly nasty custody battle, and Rebecca and her sisters ended up living with their mom. But it was not an easy life with their mom all the time growing up. The siblings were in and out of foster homes, but had chosen to later reunite with their mother once things had kind of started looking up. The mom moved around a lot, and the girls had not a lot of stability. And Rebecca's father said this is what led to Rebecca's rebelliousness and her strong independence. So that kind of also adds to where the family maybe isn't being weird. They're just like, this is kind of how she is. So the family arrives and police fill them in on what they know so far. They tell the family about the amount of blood that they found in Casey's room and reveal that Rebecca's belongings and her dog were still there. And the family of Rebecca kind of starts to understand the severity of the situation but they continue to hold out hope that Rebecca would show back up. Police are thinking exactly what we're thinking right now, and this is a crime scene, and Casey's obviously the number one suspect. They ask Casey straight up, where is Rebecca? And of course, he claims that he doesn't know. Casey claims that on Sunday night, he had been with Rebecca. They drove around Mountain View searching for something to do. They decided to rent a few movies that they would watch back at Casey's house. Then... Casey's cousin, Billy, stopped by to see Casey, and he stayed for about 10 to 15 minutes, but he didn't come inside. He just, like, pulled up, and Casey came out and talked to him. I was like, hey, I got a girl here, whatever, whatever, and Billy kind of catches up with him and leaves. About an hour later, Casey and Rebecca called in a night and went to bed. Monday morning, Rebecca took Casey to work at Sonic. Casey's dad was actually borrowing his truck, so Casey just needed a ride, and this is because I think Casey's father was like a long haul trucker. So he had like his big truck or whatever. And he would time to time borrow Casey's truck when he was home. So Casey said that Rebecca's plan was to go back to his house, relax, maybe take a nap and then come back to pick him up after his shift. And we know that between 8 and 8.30 that Monday after she drops Casey off, Rebecca goes to a convenience store called the Possum Trot because there's a recorded video of Rebecca there. Yeah. What an Arkansas name. Yeah. What in freaking Arkansas is a freaking possum trot. It's embarrassing. Let's... Should we cut that out? I mean, maybe. Honestly, we can just call it a convenience store. Because <laughs> what the heck. Um, then she would probably be heading back to school that next Monday. However, we know Casey would claim that Rebecca never showed to pick him up from Sonic after a shift. Casey kind of shrugged it off and ended up going to hang out with his friends, and he claimed that he had not been back to his house since Monday morning. So he knew nothing about all the things police found in the house. 
which I, I think that this would also like partly explain why he was so willing to let them in the house if he truly didn't know what they were going to find. Casey maintains that he knew nothing about Rebecca's disappearance and that he had not harmed her in any way. Just from looking at the scene, police believe that Rebecca knew her killer. There didn't appear to be any forced entry. There was no marks on the door or broken locks. We know that that usually means that she just let someone into the house if there's no forced entry. Or uh, they lived there. Yes, or they lived there. Exactly. So maybe someone that she was in a relationship with, someone that she had relationship problems with, but someone that she would feel comfortable enough to let in the house or that let themselves in the house. So police ask Casey, well, if you didn't do it, do you know anybody else that you think might have done it? Casey suggests that the police take a look at this guy named Jason Gullett, and he's actually another ex of Rebecca. Justin and Rebecca dated in high school, and they were broken up, but Rebecca seemed to think of Justin as one of the people that just kind of got away, like the one that got away, I guess. So I think there was still something there between them. The flame was still kind of going. They were still in contact with one another. Um... And friends and family seem to, some for some reason, believe that Rebecca and Justin did see each other time to time, like dating. When police gave Rebecca's stuff back to her family, the family discovered that inside of Rebecca's purse was a letter from Justin. And the letter said that he still loved her, that they belonged together, that he was waiting on her. You, you know, so many words. That's what the letter said. So it made the family believe there's still some kind of love interest going on between her and Justin. Obviously, police want to talk to Justin, but no one has really heard from him yet. Rebecca's family begins calling him in hopes that he might have heard from Rebecca. Justin was not home and not answering his phone. But two days later, Justin calls back and says, sorry, he was at the casino with his father, but he hadn't seen Rebecca. Uh, he was at the casino for a couple days? That's what he says. And I will add that there's, at this time, I don't think any casino in Arkansas. So he would have been in Oklahoma, like out of the state, likely in Oklahoma. I mean, I can't say for sure, but I think that's probably the case because it's kind of, you know, northwest Arkansas and probably wasn't that far of a drive. But he says he was there for two days with his dad. Um, And Justin tells the police that, He's been there since Rebecca went missing. Like, he's been there before she even went missing. I think that police kind of rule him out pretty easily, considering all of the video cameras at casinos. They kind of stopped focusing on Justin pretty soon in the investigation. So I have to assume that they verified that he really was at the casino. This was devastating to Rebecca's family. This was kind of the last of the places that they thought that they could find her alive. Police begin a full search for Rebecca. She could be anywhere. There's miles and miles of national forests around these areas. You know how I love a national forest moment. Now at this time of the year, the forest can be very dense. Searchers are climbing through brush, thorns, bushes, searching for Rebecca. At the end of the week, searchers were searching on an area off the desolate highway. And about 30 feet down from a steep embankment, they come across the body of a young girl laying on her side. Police tell Rebecca's family that they're pretty sure that it is Rebecca, although they still need a positive ID, and it's going to be kind of hard because she is decomposed. She's been there for about a week. She's wearing, I believe, a shirt and panties, and that's it. Rebecca's father was actually a dentist, so he gives police Rebecca's dental records, and it's confirmed that that is the body of Rebecca Gould. Side note, how often should we be getting dental x-rays because i think it's been quite a few years for me me too i don't know if they'd be able to identify me with that yeah with my baby teeth i don't think so and i do not wear my retainer (laughs) yeah if we yeah we won't know it's you kylie oh gosh okay i put it in if i go missing folder i'll put on my to-do list yep dental x-rays So there's no question that Rebecca's death was a terrible homicide. There was repetitive blunt force trauma, and Rebecca was beaten with a blunt instrument, obviously. This suggests a certain amount of rage. Remember, just from looking at the crime scene, police believe that Rebecca knew her killer, 
just because of the no force entry. And there was also cleanup from the scene. So I guess also the fact that the scene was cleaned up kind of also suggests that she knew her killer because I think that probably they knew that no one else would be coming home in that amount of time and they had this amount of time to clean. Um, I think if you just broke into a home, you'd probably like do whatever you did and then run and leave. You wouldn't stay around and do laundry, essentially, and do all these things to clean up because you would be scared that somebody was going to come home and actually catch you and see your face. Sorry if you already said this. Did they already clear Casey? No, Casey's not clear. Okay. Because I don't think a killer would care about the crime scene being cleaned up if it wasn't his home or some... You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. If I, I broke into a random home, I'm not going to flip the mattress and clean the sheets. No, I'm going to be like, screw it. Who cares? I don't know these people. They don't know me. I'm not going to yeah. clean up. I'm just going to hit and run, you know? Yeah. So this kind of adds to the theory that police are like, okay, we have to very close-knit circle of people that we're going to be looking at here. The killer likely used towels from the house to clean up the majority of the visible blood. In the process of cleaning, the killer removed the bloody sheets from the bed, flipped over the mattress so the blood stain would not be visible at first glance, and the killer hid the bloody pillows and towels under the bed. So some of the linens and towels went under the bed, some of them went into the washing machine. Again, this doesn't seem like something someone would do when they have no connection to the home, like they feel so comfortable that they're going to start a load of laundry. With this, police get started with their investigation. Police believe that Rebecca was killed in the house, and this was due to the amount of blood and because the murder weapon was strikingly obvious. We know that Rebecca was killed with blunt force trauma, so police are looking for a blunt instrument, and they do not have to look very far. In the bedroom where all the blood was, police find the leg of a piano. And the piano is in the living room. So there's a four-legged piano, and she was killed with a blunt force instrument. The piano leg's in the bedroom. It's pretty obvious. So, so it's a three-legged piano now. Wait, no one... Yeah, it's a three-legged. Did I say four? Well, it, it was four. Now it's a three-legged piano. Okay, did no one notice that the piano is missing a whole leg? How does it stay upright? Okay, so apparently this piano has been broken for a long time, and I guess they just, like, prop the leg back up and make it look like it's sitting there or something, because they said that even when somebody would walk in the house and walk hard on the floors, that the leg would just topple over. Oh. Yeah. Also, weird murder instrument. You think, okay, I'm going to kill this person. I know this piano leg is broken. Let me go grab that real quick. It's like... It's either you have to know the piano leg is going to come out or it falls. Like, it's an opportunity. You, like, see it and laying on the floor and you grab it. Or you already know it's going to come off and you grab it off the piano, yeah. you know? I don't think that... Yeah. So, either way, that is how Rebecca is killed. Although many of Rebecca's belongings were still in the house, police noticed that Rebecca's suitcase was gone. And police believe that the killer likely did this to make it look like Rebecca had just left. Someone said that, that, you know, they did that because they thought maybe that they could make it look like she just left. But her car's there, her dog's there, her stuff is there. I don't know. I don't know what the suitcase is at this point, but her suitcase is gone. Police are still pretty sure that Casey is the main suspect. All signs are pointing to Casey. Wait, I have a question. mm -hmm. I don't know if this is going to be a spoiler alert. But is there blood in her car? Because if he didn't have a car, he, Casey killed her, you know, transported the body. What's mm-hmm. the car looking like? There is not any blood in Rebecca's car that I, um, that I read anywhere. Okay, that's weird. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it is weird. Rebecca's father tells police that although Rebecca and Casey were off again... Casey had started being possessive of Rebecca and she was not planning on continuing whatever was going on between them. She was going to kind of tell him that all bets of them getting back together were off. So that's adding to Casey not looking so great. In fact, she was planning on seeing him this visit to cut things off with him. So right there is motive enough to for police to start looking more at Casey. In theory... Rebecca had broken things off with Casey, 
Casey had become enraged and killed Rebecca, hence the blunt force trauma suggesting a rage killing. So this looks perfect to police, but like you said, it doesn't make sense that how would he transport it? He doesn't have the car, blah, blah, blah. So Casey's friends and family don't agree. I mean, obviously they don't agree. No killer's families usually agree that they did it. But his friends and family say that Casey was peaceful and he didn't have it in it to hurt anyone, let alone hurt someone in a way like this. This was a killing of rage and they didn't believe that this was anywhere in Casey's nature. Of course, police are going to start working to verify that Casey was actually at Sonic all day, working Monday from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. is when he says he was there on Monday. And then, of course, we know he never, he says he never came home. So... Co-workers of Casey's actually say that he was there all day. His friends verify they passed him and they saw him stranded in the parking lot after work, waiting to be picked up and that no one ever showed to pick him up. They asked him what he was doing and he stated he was waiting on his ride and his friends were like, well, we're going to go eat, go to the movies, yada, yada. And he says, yes, he's going to go with them. After the movie, they go back to the friend's house and they crash. And the friends claim that they still have the movie tickets and all of their receipts to check out their story. The next morning, the friends witness Casey get up and get ready for work, and then I guess they take him to work. Friends also say that they remember Casey getting a text from Rebecca's mom. Casey made the comment that Rebecca's mom had texted him and that she was worried because no one could get a hold of Rebecca, and she was supposed to go back to school. So Casey's kind of getting these texts from Rebecca's mom saying that no one's been able to talk to Rebecca. And he doesn't really seem to take it that seriously, especially knowing that she could still be at his house. So that's kind of another red flag. I know. I feel like if someone who's supposed to pick me up from work didn't pick me up, I would be calling. Yeah, I think I would be too. Casey kind of claims that he was maybe like irritated that she didn't and was just kind of like maybe done with it. But, uh, I mean, still, I think that that would probably put two and two together and be like, well, she didn't pick me up at work. I'm mad. But also her mom says she's missing. So, like, maybe she's just missing, you know? Yeah. So, police are sure that Casey was at work or with his friends all day from 8 a.m. into Tuesday. So, they know that Rebecca was still alive at 8 a.m. because she was spotted at the possum trot between 8 a.m. and 8.15 a.m. So, within those 15 minutes, she's spotted on the camera. Police also found Rebecca's breakfast sandwich and coffee from the possum trot in Casey's house. So, we know she made it back from the convenience store called the possum trot. Rebecca had dropped Casey off at work, then stopped by. Police believe that Rebecca was killed shortly after arriving back at Casey's house. This kind of throws a wrench in police's theory that Casey killed Rebecca... Because he can account for all his time. He has no way to get back to the house. We know he comes to work. And he's there all day. So, police have to kind of start looking at other people, other possibilities. They have to start asking who else would have access to the house. They look at Casey and all his family, thinking they could have gotten into his house. Police remember the cousin, Billy, who stopped by to see Casey for a few minutes that Sunday night. Billy actually lived in Texas, so police contact Texas authorities, and the Texas authorities interview Billy, and this lead kind of seems to fizzle out and go nowhere. I assume Billy might have had an alibi. And then people in Mountain View start giving all kinds of tips, just kind of the rumor mill starts turning in this small town, which is pretty typical. They start getting crazy here in Mountain View. It leads to a bunch of random tips from townspeople. Um, One of these possible tips was that one of the old co-workers had something to do with it from Sonic. This co-worker's name was Jennifer Turner. And Rebecca and Jennifer had worked at Sonic together. And Jennifer was actually the ex of Justin. So remember, Justin's the high school flame of Rebecca that she still might have feelings for, possibly. So Jennifer actually was pregnant with Justin's baby at the time. But it seemed to be common knowledge that Justin loved Rebecca. So we have motive here a little bit, uh, maybe. Police talk to Jennifer, and Jennifer claims that this is completely false. She says that she loved Rebecca, and they were actually best friends. Jennifer said that she had been shopping in another town on the day that Rebecca was killed. 
She said she was shopping in a close-by town called Conway. She probably remembered Conway. Kyle. I remember that town. Yeah, so she's shopping in Conway, and the alibi checks out, and police double-check. They subpoena Jennifer's phone records and find there's really nothing to connect her to the murder. She is where she says she was, so that fizzles out. The next person that we talked to is named Chris, and Chris is kind of maybe just like a loudmouth around town. He's stirring up rumors that it was possible that Rebecca was killed by a man she owed money to. The man that Rebecca did owe money to was named J.B. Yates. And J.B. was actually a guy that Rebecca bought weed from. Rebecca had recently bought a bag of weed from J.B. to take home back to college. And Rebecca owed J.B. $20 for that bag of weed. This is what this guy Chris is telling people around town. Like, oh, I bet it was J.B. She owes him money. It kind of started this narrative that Rebecca owed a drug dealer money, you know, and they speculated that this could be a motive. I mean, I guess people have killed for less, but it's $20 and a bag of weed. I don't, I mean, whatever. I feel like everyone resorts to a drug deal gone bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what they're saying here. Um, it is $20. I mean, I guess we've seen people get killed over less than $20. But anyways, please sit down with JB. And JB tells police that, actually, no, Rebecca paid me back a few days ago. He's like, yeah, I sold her weed and she paid me back. And he said he had no problem with her and kind of shrugged it off and was like, yeah, many, many people owe me more than $20 right now. So did he get arrested for selling I hope, weed? I, I hope, I hope not. I hope not. He's really putting himself out there like, uh, no. They, I think the police, like in the interview that police had, they were like, his interview you know he was cocky and blah blah like all these negative things about him and he's just like nope i didn't you know i sold her weed and that's it bye it seemed like that jb and rebecca were actually just generally friends and not a, her drug dealer like people were kind of making it out to be um and police couldn't tie jb to the murder in any way so then they turn police turn back to this chris guy who was the one talking about jb saying oh he owes JB money, so he killed her. So please start going to the root of the rumor, this guy named Chris. So please talk to this guy named Chris. Chris is not only telling people that JB Yates was involved in the murder of Rebecca, but he's actually he's actually ratting on himself too. And he says that to some people he says actually he was involved in the murder. And he tells people that he actually had blood in his car. So that'll be fun for him. Um, to see how that works out. And people kind of believe Chris because he has a reputation around town of being kind of violent. Police call Chris in and they want to know about Chris's car. Where is it at? Because he's saying that there's blood in it. So Chris tells police that he actually just sold his car. Police find the guy that Chris sold his car to and they talk to this guy and this guy who Chris sold his car to says... Yeah, actually, we had a very odd interaction because Chris actually said, hey, if you find body parts in the trunk, thank God you had the car destroyed before police got to it, which I don't even understand that statement. I don't know if that's like some like weird joke or there's some like backstory or context to it, but that's what he says. Like, even if it is a joke, if you're trying to sell your car to this guy, why would you say that? Yeah. Yeah, it's very bizarre. I don't know if it was like a like a dark joke that he thought was funny. Um, it was pretty odd. So the problem that police have with Chris is that they're unable to think of any motive for Chris to kill Rebecca at this time. And around the time that police are starting to look at Chris, they get evidence back from the crime scene. And it's tested against all of the people that they've talked to. And... They get DNA from Jennifer, J.B. Yates, and Chris, and they immediately rule out all three of them. So it's not it's not either one of it's not any of those three that we just talked about because police are kind of like looking at them, wondering if it's them. They all give DNA and it doesn't match. Chris is just a weirdo. Chris is just Chris is just a weirdo. This case is different than a lot of other cases because we see a lot of cases where police are running out of leads. But in this case, police are not running out of leads at all. In fact, they have too many. 
they're getting all these crazy tips from people in town and a lot of them are just nutty people who are just sitting around calling constantly i feel like that's a distraction like we're not putting enough effort into investigating casey yeah yeah like okay sure he was supposedly at work do we know if he left or not like let's look into that yeah before we start running down chris's old car and i don't know if sonic had cameras or anything all of the people and he doesn't have a car but all the people he worked with say he never left but i would be definitely wanting to verify that a little bit more i don't know if they did if they had cameras i kind of highly doubt that they did but maybe Uh, okay we can cut this part out but did he just rollerblade away maybe he did maybe he rollerbladed back to the house they should have thought about that did they have rollerblades in 2004 i bet they did for sure but yeah they definitely did back then that was prime time my cousin used to want to work at Sonic because she just wanted to roll around on rollerblades all the time. <laughs> I always got so nervous when they come out. I was like, every single time I'm like, they're going to fall. They're going to fall. What's, I mean, what started rollerblades at Sonic? Did one employee just like want to do it and then everybody else followed suit? Or was it like you have to rollerblade to work here, you know? I guess you got to like stand out for McDonald's. They're not rollerblading. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to get the wheelies out and show some skills. Oh, that's what we should do. A uh, fast food with like Heelys. Yes. Yeah. Chick fil A needs to get on that. For sure. If they haven't already. So, years actually begin to pass in this case, and then nothing picks up, nothing pans out. Friends and family of Rebecca become frustrated. Rebecca's dad begins writing letters to police, begging for access to some of his daughter's files. He wants to look for himself and see if he can figure out what police are missing. Of course, we know that police don't usually do this even if it's a cold case. They just don't give out police records. I mean, sometimes they do, and we know that when they do, it's for strategic reasons. But apparently, Rebecca's father hasn't even seen her autopsy, and he wants to see it really badly to see how his daughter was killed, which I understand that. Um, But... In 2016, the prosecutor finally does release only the autopsy report to Rebecca's father. And it really doesn't do much good. I mean, Rebecca's father's not going to solve it, you know? So, um, he does get to see that. And he actually was, like, pushing for a law that said that families can look at the documents of cases after a certain amount of time. I don't know where that is or if it's gone anywhere in the system, but... For a while, Rebecca's father was a really strong advocate for a law that would allow that. Fast forward to 2018, 14 years after the murder, a popular true crime podcast begins covering Rebecca's murder. The podcaster's name is Catherine Townsend, and she is a native of the Arkansas area. So, just a girl after our hearts. Um, Catherine is a bit of a badass, and she begins interviewing people around the town, and she interviews a man who claims that he knows who killed Rebecca. He claims that he knows who killed Rebecca because the killer told him himself that he did. The killer was his co-worker named- At Sonic? Wait. Oh my gosh, I think it might be at Sonic. Oh my god, I think it's at Sonic. Okay, so this co-worker is Casey McCullough surprise so probably sonic actually casey and this man worked together and they were drinking one night after work and casey told the man that he killed rebecca because she rejected him rebecca told casey that this was the last time that he would see her because like rebecca's family said rebecca was planning on breaking up with casey on that visit so that kind of actually tracks with what the family is saying and i i think it's probably public knowledge that the family was saying that So I think it was normal for townspeople to know that Casey was being looked at because Rebecca was claiming that she was going to end things with him. Police actually pick up on this podcaster's interview and they go and they interview this man who's on the podcast who doesn't want to be named, but he's saying that Casey confessed to him. So police interview this person and they unfortunately say that the confession doesn't make sense they don't understand why this man would wait so long to bring forth this evidence and 
it being a small town, police start to uncover some reasons why this man might lie about Casey. People said that one of the main reasons this man came forward was because Casey was actually sleeping with this guy's ex-wife. Oh, it's a pretty good motive to lie. Yeah, to lie to this podcaster. I mean, he's not lying. We don't know what he says to police, but to the podcaster, he's like, yeah, he said he did it. Like, he told me he did it. I used to work with him. So people theorize that this man just wants revenge and went on the podcast saying his old co-worker Casey, who's now sleeping with his ex-wife, killed Rebecca. So that's kind of what police are thinking is going on with this guy. Dateline NBC, which was a source that I used for some of the information on this case, contacted this man. Of course, he didn't want to be identified, but claims that that's actually didn't happen. Casey was not sleeping with his ex-wife. Yada, yada. This tip basically fizzles out, ends up going nowhere. But more and more podcasts pop up about Rebecca's murder, which we love that. They're talking about it. They're keeping it relevant. But also, social media was kind of running rampant right now. It's 2004. And town gossip has now taken to social media platforms. And people are just on this, like, witch hunt pointing fingers of random people and have no real things to back up their claims they're just like blaming people for killing her even so much as pointing the finger at rebecca's sister which there's never been any evidence that her sister killed her it sucks because like there's so much good that social media can do for coverage of cases that have kind of gone stale or cold but as we know it can hurt in other ways so that's kind of what's happening in this small town years have passed and the detectives on this case begin retiring So the people who, you know, started the case are starting to retire. Although this sucks, we get fresh eyes to start looking at the case, and a new detective starts from square one. Of course, we know that square one is Casey, but the detective just truly believed that Casey did not kill Rebecca. And I don't know if that's some information that we don't have of why he thinks that, but he does not think that it's possible that Casey killed Rebecca. The new detective's theory was that Casey didn't do it, but someone in Casey's family did. And I really truly don't know how the detective arrived at the theory that it was someone in her family. Detectives believe that the murder was likely sexually motivated, and we know that we were not able to tell if she had been assaulted from the autopsy because of the decomposition, but it seemed like a sexually motivated crime. The detective believed that Rebecca knew her killer, which we know, and they thought that because Casey's family owned the property that this house was on, I think it was actually a trailer um, that was on this family property, they believe that it's possible that it was someone in Casey's family that felt comfortable enough being on the property, being in the house. Casey's father was quickly eliminated and police talked to Casey's half-brother and the other brother, Chris, who was also cleared. There was one brother left named Corey. So police bring Corey in, and when police bring Corey in, they kind of do this weird thing where, it's not really weird because they do it all the time, but they lie to Corey and tell him that they have evidence of his involvement in the crime. Um, So yeah, we know they do this all the time. It's a tactic, and they do it pretty often. But what's kind of weird is they basically interviewed all of the brothers and and they were so dead set on it being one of the brothers that they were like, okay, well, it's not them. So we're going to hit the last one really hard. Like it has to be him. Police bring Corey in and they start off by telling him that they found his DNA on a piece of cloth under the bed. Corey is pretty adamant that it is not his DNA. And he said that if it was his, it was from a long time ago. So earlier I had said that, that DNA had cleared the three people of interest and then I had a source kind of later say that contradict that and say that there wasn't DNA that the police had found so I'm kind of unclear on that point but police don't have Corey's DNA we know that but they're lying to him and telling him that they do to get him to confess please take the lie even further and they say that they actually have Corey's truck that he drove at the time, a blue Ford Ranger, which they don't. They just found out that's what he drove at the time and said that they had it. They told Corey that they had found his Ranger and right at that very moment, it was at the crime scene being tested for evidence. 
Um, this is important because police still believe that Rebecca was killed in the house and her body was then transported to the ravine where they found her. So they know that somebody would have had to have used their vehicle to transport her body. Police speculated that whoever killed Rebecca spent time at the murder scene cleaning. Corey catches on to this lie and he's like, I know what you're trying to do. I'm not going to let you. I'm innocent and you're looking at the wrong person. Despite all of this big shenanigan, police conclude that Corey is not their killer. Now police bring back in some people that they've already talked to and they start returning over rocks. They bring back in Billy, the cousin from Texas that stopped by the house. Police start doing some background research on Billy, which I don't know, you would have thought they would have done in the beginning, but I guess they didn't. They find out that two years before Rebecca's murder, Billy was actually a suspect in a sexual assault on a minor, and it was an aggravated sexual assault. He was arrested in 2010, again, for basically breaking into his ex-wife's house and pushing her. So, Billy's starting to look a little bit worse than he did in the beginning. Billy's even a part of a Facebook group that posts updates about Rebecca's investigation. Police are kind of like, why would this guy continue to follow the case? And actually, Billy lives in the Philippines now, so they're like, why would Billy, that lives in the Philippines that didn't even meet her, continue to keep up with her case? Um, I don't think it's that weird. I didn't find it that weird because it's a small town and he was like, kind of involved in the scene when she disappeared you know like he was at his cousin's house his cousin was being looked at everybody knew his cousin was being looked at I don't think it's that weird that he would join a Facebook page that posted updates on her murder but this was one of the things that police said they thought was weird I don't really think it is yeah like god forbid we be little crime junkies yeah yeah god forbid we stay up to date with the news Police had interviewed Billy back in the initial stages of the investigation, but this go-around would prove to be quite a bit more tough because, like I said, Billy now lives in the Philippines, and he's on a banana plantation with his wife and kids, so a banana plantation. I just love that. What is he on the run from? That's what I'm wondering. Like, how do you end up on a banana plantation in the Philippines? Yeah, from Arkansas to a banana plantation. Seems a bit suspicious. Police are basically shit out of luck about talking to Billy, and all they can do at the moment is put an alert on his passport in hopes that when he does come back into the U.S. that they can flag him at customs and then police can be notified that he's back and try to talk to him. But they can't, like, make him come back for an interview from the Philippines. So, October 2020, Billy is planning on flying home to see his mom in Oregon. I guess maybe he books a flight or something and Billy's passport is flagged and the police get this alert. So this is great. The police call Billy's mom and the mom tell police that, no, Billy's not coming home. Like, she doesn't know what they're talking about. Like, no, he's not, he's not going to be back. He's still in the Philippines. But police know this is a lie. She, what Billy's mom doesn't know is that the police already know because his visa's already been flagged. And she claimed that she's not even talked to Billy. So we know that Billy's mom is lying for him and police are like, this is even more suspicious, you know. Billy's mom calls back later and is like, oh, oh yeah, like actually, yeah, Billy is coming back into the United States and he, he'll he be in town. And she just like, was sorry, like I didn't know y'all already knew that he was going to be here. Sorry uh, I lied and you found out. Yeah, sorry I lied to your face. Um, I don't truly know how the mom found out that they already knew. I don't know, but... She knew she was caught in a lie, so she she dials her phone back and calls police back and is like, sorry. So she tells police that Billy will be back and he will come talk to them on October 7th. So in this time, when they're waiting for Billy to fly back to the U.S., they find his old truck. And this is 16 years later, so it's very surprising that they found his old truck, but they did. And they actually had the new owner send police photos of the truck. Billy shows up and police use the same tactic that they did with the other person before where they were lying. Police asked Billy if he would take a polygraph and he actually says that he will. Insert Kate Snow polygraphs rant. Billy says he was going to take a polygraph. But then Billy kind of backtracks this a bit and he's like, I want to make sure like this is not this can't be used in court, right? This can't be like used in court, which... 
No, it can't, per Kate's rant. But he still says he's going to do the polygraph. They start setting up the polygraph, and Billy starts, like, kind of freaking out. He's like, no, 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 wait, like, I have really bad anxiety, like, I don't know, like, it's gonna mess up, you know, like, he's starting to sweat a little bit when they're trying to actually make him take this polygraph. Then police push a little bit further, and they say that they have the DNA of the suspect, and ask if he wouldn't mind giving them a DNA sample so they can clear him. Police are being really nonchalant, they're just like, no, just like, just give it to us and we'll clear you. By the way, the police don't have evidence, DNA evidence, I don't think. But the mention of the DNA made Billy a little anxious. Also, in the midst of all of this, police asked Billy to retell his story of the night that he was over at his cousin's house. And Billy does so. But this time, Billy adds that he was inside the house. And he says he remembers that he was inside and he was sitting in the living room. And then, oh yeah, he used the bathroom too. Um, So that could like explain why his DNA is in the house, by the way. So he's adding this little bit of extra information and putting himself inside the house when in the beginning he said he wasn't. He's like, oh, well, I sat in the living room, sat all over the furniture, and I went to the bathroom. So, I mean, that, if you find my DNA, that's that's why. Oh, yeah, and I had, like, a cut and I took a nap in the bed. Yeah, he starts making up all of these little things that he didn't say in the beginning. He even goes so far as to say, like, oh, by the way, like, all the furniture in Casey's house was my mom's old furniture so if you find my dna like all over the furniture it's because it used to be our furniture and she gave it to casey so you know write that off please so this is the first time billy's ever said that he came inside the house which is convenient instead he was saying he only talked to his cousin outside in the driveway or whatever and then he left officers are just kind of appeasing billy and they're like yes yes of course yep your dna would be there like that's why we you know we totally understand just like give us a dna sample and like we'll we'll have you out of here you know billy takes the polygraph and then police officers confront billy and they start switching to bad cop and they tell billy that he failed the polygraph police come in and hit billy with like everything they know they tell him they don't believe all the shit about the furniture being his mom's and the dna in the house and they start confronting him about his lies and his story and then they whip out these photos of billy's old truck that they got from the new owner and they tell billy well we found dna in the truck which is a lie of course they haven't even tested it they said that they found traces of rebecca's blood in the truck and police urge billy to confess billy says that he did not kill rebecca but he saw who did oh yes just so long later he did he says he saw Billy says that on Monday morning, he was actually out hunting on his grandfather's property, which was the land that Casey's trailer was on, when he noticed that there was a white vehicle in Casey's driveway. He sees two young men, and one of them was on the back porch of Casey's house and was covered in blood and had gloves on. Billy says he then sees the men jump into the car and speed away. Billy goes in to check on this weird little scene, and... Billy's telling them all this information. Police are asking questions. And then Billy asks if he can just, like, leave for a second and go speak to his mom. They actually let him do this, which is odd. They let him... I mean, he. I guess he's not under arrest. He can leave. But they let him break the interview and go talk to his mom. Officers say that Billy went out of the room. He hugged his mom and whispered something in her ear. When Billy sits back down, the officer says, Let's talk. He says, I know this has been reeling in your head like a movie reel since it happened. I know there's nothing about this that you forgot. I know that because I have been doing this a long time. Billy interrupts the officer and says, I did it. I did it and I'm sorry for what I did. Dang, maybe it was a good move to let him talk to his mom. Yeah, whatever his mom said to him. Billy fussed up. Billy says that this is the first time he's ever confessed and he played his whole family like a fool no one else knew which no one else really focused on this little point that he said but i found a little sus because his mom's already lied to him and then he's like he confesses and the second thing out of his mouth was like by the way like i i've been playing everybody for a fool nobody knew like okay why do you feel the need to say that like did your mom know i mean maybe not but it's a little weird right i don't know i feel like maybe if the police called looking for my child, I'd be like, kind of push it to the side, call them, be like, well, what the fuck happened? And then i call the true. police back. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably probably what happened. I don't know, but maybe. 
Billy then spills the whole story. Billy's story is that the night before, he had gone over to Casey's, but he had not met Rebecca, although he knew that she was there. Him and Casey had talked about it. But then the next morning, while Rebecca was alone, after she took Casey to work, Billy parks his truck on his grandfather's property and walks to Casey's house. Billy knocked on the door and was greeted by Rebecca. Billy explained that he was Casey's cousin and that he needed to use the phone. Billy said this was just a ruse to get inside. He never even made a phone call. And I guess while he's making this call or pretending to make this call, Rebecca walks back into the bedroom and lays back down. I think she was probably, I don't know, but it seems like she was maybe in the middle of an app. And she goes and lays back down. She kind of lets him have his space to make his phone call. While he is waiting on Rebecca to come back, the rickety leg of the piano falls off, which we know it does all the time. And the leg fell off, and Billy says he just grabbed it. Billy walked to the bedroom where Rebecca had fallen back asleep. Billy hit her twice, and then the leg of the piano fell apart. Billy has still never told his motive, although he claims that it was not sexual. He said that a light switch just went off in him. He never knew Rebecca, and she had never done anything to hurt him. Rebecca was still alive after Billy hit her with a piano leg. So Billy found a tie in the house, a men's, you know, shirt tie, and used it to strangle Rebecca. He put the bedding in the suitcase, flipped the mattress, wiped up blood, and then threw the extra bedding in the washing machine. Billy dumped the suitcase in a wooded area. A search party rushed to the spot where Billy said he had dumped it, and years and years later, the suitcase was still there. Billy was obviously arrested on site. And finally, after 16 years, Rebecca's family got the call that they thought they may never get. Someone had been arrested for the murder of their daughter and sister, Rebecca Gould. At trial, Billy pled not guilty. Billy's defense team claimed that Billy was not read his full Miranda rights before his formal interview. So what had happened was the officer had begun reading Billy his rights, and the officer got to the third right, which is usually you have the right to an attorney. And... He began to start to read the fourth right, but Billy interrupted him and was like, so should I get an attorney? Of course, the officer explains to him he can't advise him of if he should get an attorney, but he's only just like reading him these rights and he can't offer him any advice. So the officer explains this to him and the officer goes on with the Miranda rights, but he skips the fourth one. So he just like skips over a number of the Miranda rights because he was interrupted. And this is what Billy's defense team hinges their case on. The officer then goes on to read the fourth Miranda right. If you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed to you. So obviously, police have to read all of the Miranda rights to anyone in order to use what they say at trial. Basically, if the officer doesn't sufficiently tell a person of their rights, this could exclude anything that they say in court. Hence the whole confession and everything being used against Billy. And also, I'll give you a quick rundown of the exclusionary rule um that's because it has to do with evidence a lot (laughs) kylie's rolling her eyes by me probably but it has to do with evidence allowed in a criminal trial so the whole point is to prohibit the government from illegally obtaining evidence that can be used against a defendant because there's just certain rules that police have to follow and if they don't it's kind of like an incentive for them to play by the rules and also keep them accountable So if someone's not read their Miranda rights before an interrogation, then anything they say usually can't be used in court. And there's also this little like extra principle called fruit of the poisonous tree. So it's an extension of the exclusionary rule and it addresses uh, evidence derived from the primary confession. It can be more than a confession, but a lot of times it'll be somebody confesses and there's a flaw in how you're read your Miranda rights and then anything that comes from that confession like finding a suitcase with the blood or finding all of these things in this trial that came from his confession is tainted evidence and also can't be used at trial. So like in this case, if the court decided that because Billy was not read all of his Miranda rights, then all of the evidence that police discovered because of Billy's confession could not be used in court as evidence against him. This is important in the case because without any corroborating evidence, police wouldn't have anything. They wouldn't have the clothing. They wouldn't have the suitcase. They wouldn't have the confession. So they would basically have nothing. 
the court holds a three-day hearing to decide if the jury can even hear this evidence or if the exclusionary rule is going to keep it out. The judge ended up ruling that the confession and all the fruit from it was admissible in court. Billy was not read all of his Miranda rights, but he did end up signing a document that acknowledged he knew all of his rights. And this was kind of the saving grace for the prosecution because Billy had signed this document, which is just kind of a formality. So at trial, Billy ends up taking a plea deal and he gets 40 years with a chance of parole. Rebecca's family feels that they did get the justice that they were seeking. Rebecca's father made a statement and said, nothing would ever stop us from finding the person that murdered Rebecca. Today I look to the heaven and whisper, promise made, promise kept. And that is the story of the murder of Rebecca Gould. I feel like the sentence was a little light. I know. That is too. Also, what a plot twist. Yes. And did I say 40 years with a chance of parole? Did I say that? With a chance of parole? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, her family was happy with it, so I guess that's fine. Yeah, but I agree. I think it seems pretty light. But yeah, a twist, because we all think it's going to be Casey. We all think it's going to be the significant other. And this time it was random, basically random. And what are the odds that, I don't know if like Casey told him that she was picking him up from work or whatever, but like, how did he know he like wasn't going to come home? And then Casey's just like nonchalant about them searching the house and finding all this blood and evidence. Yeah, it's actually... It's Crazy. actually kind of, yeah, very ironic. It's weird. Very weird. That was a juicy one, though. I feel like we should, like, keep count of how many Arkansas cases you have, but all of them have been great. Yes. And there, out there. Got some got some good, good Arkansas cases. I mean, this one was crazy because it's, like, all of the people that they interviewed, it's, like, it, or, you know, were suspects or persons of interest. It's, like pretty convincing that they could have done it they had a pretty good motive all these people but the one you least expect billy that just stopped by for 10 minutes and a switch went off in his head apparently to just go kill somebody what about the family at the banana farm in the philippines were they still there this whole time i hope that they're enjoying their life in the philippines on their banana plantation yeah i feel like that's where i would go if my husband was in jail for that yeah chilling in the philippines i wouldn't come back to mountain view arkansas that's for sure nope so we're going to hop into our segment overtime and Kylie apparently has something to confront me about. So yes, this is a confrontation overtime. I, you know, I spent a little bit of time, you know, we do the Christmas gifts every year. Obviously it's Christmas, Christmas and, you know, I ordered some stuff and I bought, I think the cutest wrapping paper I could find. And I spent so long wrapping the gift don't even remember what it looks like. Thanks so much, Holly. Um, I had to pre-order it. <laughs> Anyways, I'm really bad at wrapping gifts, but I spent so long and I felt like out of all the gifts I wrapped this year so far, yours was wrapped the best. And I, you know, I mail it out and Holly gets it two days later. It's wrapped, you know, the gift. And then it's in another box. And Holly just opened it immediately as soon as it got to her door. I didn't wait one second. I ripped it I was, open. Fast I obviously I didn't even look at the wrapping paper. I don't even know what it looks like. I can't even remember. It was the best gift ever. It was so cute. And I'm so glad I opened it early. In the group message, I was like, I texted Kylie and I was like, I freaking love it. I love it so much. It's so cute. Blah, blah, blah. And Kylie's like, what? You opened it? And I was like, yeah girl and kate was like i'm waiting to open mine it's not christmas yet holly and i was like damn i'm sorry i opened it like the moment i literally the moment it hit my doorstep i had it open like in the doorway okay i loved it it was it's so cute i'm gonna you know i love a pullover i don't know and i figured you need a little you need another cheese board but i was like that one you can use for your lobby and stuff yeah i love it i can use it for parties and all kinds of stuff yeah Little Arkansas girl. Arkansas gal. Awesome trot. Convenience store. God, I kind of want a shirt from them. Do they have merch? Let's see if they have merch. There's no way they have like a trademark on them. Oh my gosh. There's a possum trot hollow in Arkansas. That is so embarrassing. They have a Facebook page. Oh my gosh. One post from 2017. 
I try to stick up for Arkansas and say it's not as ridiculous as everybody thinks. And then they go and they name a convenience store a possum trot. And wait, there's one in Kentucky also. Uh, so it's not just Arkansas. Okay, we'll feel a little bit better. Oh, we need that shirt, Kylie. I think we do. I love that. I hate it, but I love it at the same time. Oh my gosh, the possum has sunglasses on. That's amazing. There's a town in Kentucky called Possum Trot. Possum Trot, Kentucky. I don't know, man. We got some weird towns around Arkansas. We Isn't there bald- like a frog place? Yeah, I think so. There's a bald knob. Some kind of frog festival or something. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Toad suck. Toad suck. Yes, toad suck. Uh, I wish we'd just come up with some better some better stuff. We try we try really hard to be good. We try hard to be good. And then people bring us down. Well, that concludes our episode and our overtime. And with that, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information, including photos of the case, you can check out our blog at OverMyDeadPod.com and be sure to leave a review wherever you're listening to this. And check us out on social media at OverMyDeadPod. No spaces. And we will see you next week with another case. Bye. Bye.